Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. Here's my joke. Why did the son put his father in the freezer? Because he wanted a frozen pop. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Lionel Boyce from the rap collective Odd Future. That'll help break the ice. Later in your future, you'll learn some things you didn't know from David Cronenberg, director of the new film, A Dangerous Method. Also, Grand Dame of Broadway, Elaine Stritch is here to answer etiquette questions. Yes. Comedian Dimitri Martin shares his diet. And writer-director Miranda July teaches us what she learned from the original Craigslist. Here's a hint that involves actual paper. Actual paper. All of that. Plus, the band Real Estate sends us a postcard from Paris. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. This week, you may have heard these cultural headlines. The Twilight Saga Breaking Dawn Part 1 scored a whopping $283.5 million worldwide opening. Winning multiple AMAs, reigning queen Taylor Swift. The development in one of Hollywood's most enduring mysteries, the death of Natalie Wood. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Rehan Harmansi. She is culture editor at The Bay Citizen in San Francisco. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about at your dinner parties this weekend? Well, um, given that this is Thanksgiving week, there's going to be big dinner parties. I'm going to be talking about a story I saw in Smithsonian Magazine that Mm -hmm. dealt with a variety of research around sarcasm. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. Let the games begin. (laughs) Well, not sarcastically. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Apparently, sarcasm exercises the brain, and the inability to detect sarcasm can be the sign of specific kinds of dementia. So as a transplant to California, I'm going to say everyone here might be suffering from a mild brain injury. (laughs) Because sarcasm just doesn't really fly. Everyone's so nice out here. Yeah, no, there are definitely regional differences in sarcasm. Not only do you use sarcasm more if you're from the Northeast, but you also find it funnier. Yeah. Wow. And apparently the Greek root word for sarcasm means like to tear the flesh like dogs. What? Wow, yeah. (laughs) Harsh. So the Greeks believe that that is the most violent form of of verbiage, I guess? I don't know how much more violent it could get. (laughs) You could say, I'm going to murder you. Yeah. You could just be straight up sincere about ripping your flesh apart. That's not really sarcasm, (laughs) though, right? That's hyperbole. (laughs) Well, not if you're going to actually kill them. In Grecian times, that was possible. That's true. Yeah. So wait, so I looked at this article, too. All right. This article cites studies from sarcasm experts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Don Which, Rickles? I, exactly. <laughs> Professor Don Rickles. But I just don't even understand how can anyone take that person seriously. I'm a sarcasm expert. What does it say on their card? <laughs> I'm no brain surgeon, but... <laughs> their whole business card's yeah. in italics. I was going to say, there's quotation marks around expert. <laughs> well, anyway, Rayhan, this was just a fantastic small talk. <laughs> Best ever. Yeah, thanks a lot, you guys. You guys are cracking me up. (laughs) (laughs) And now, time for cocktails. This is the part of the show where we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our world-renowned history lesson with booze. Yes. First, the history. This week back in 1877, Thomas Edison announced he'd invented the phonograph, the first functional recording device. Right, so Rico and I have him to thank for our day jobs. Now, the guests at your dinner party will know what a phonograph is. Our friend Michelle Philippi will tell us a few things they won't know. 
The first recording, Thomas Edison reading, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Not much worse quality than your average MP3, right? Those early Edison recordings were embossed on tinfoil cylinders. After a few plays on a phonograph, they'd be shredded, and only trained experts could operate the thing. Still, Edison had big plans for his invention. He figured it'd be used to record phone messages, and oh yeah, that it might be cool for listening to recorded music. But the public got over the gizmo's novelty pretty fast, and so did Edison. He soon turned his attention to something called the light bulb. Years later, Edison got back on the recording game and found stiff competition, especially from this punk, Emil Berliner. His gramophone etched sound on weird flat discs instead of cylinders. There ensued the first VHS or beta-style format war, and discs turned out to be VHS. But Edison took it in stride. He phased out cylinders and made his phonographs disc compatible. Phonographs remained his favorite invention. He even chose which music got recorded for them, even though he was pretty much deaf, which could be why the business tanked in 1929. So that was a history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I am here at the Edison, appropriately enough, in downtown Los Angeles, and I'm joined by Andrew Myron, the owner of the Edison. Hello. Hi. And Andrew Smith, apparently everyone's named Andrew here, who is uh, the head bartender here at the Edison. Hello. First of all, why is this place called the Edison? Yeah, it's, it's actually an entire, what was a functioning power plant originally. And what you see here is the original boiler that's completely intact. And you have the generators and dynamos in the back room and miscellaneous parts that are still here. Yeah, there's all this huge metal equipment around here. I kind of feel like a, uh, like a dust mite in a giant watch or something like that. Andrew number two, bartender Andrew, you've heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? We're doing the Edison 77. Okay, tell, tell me more. So it's a cocktail with uh, champagne and like the original phonograph, you could only play the tinfoil cylinders so many times before uh, you couldn't use them anymore. With any uh, cocktail with champagne, you only have so many sips before all the effervescence dissipates. I didn't think about that because I usually drink it so quick. <laughs> so what are you starting with here? One ounce of Applejack. What is Applejack? Uh, it takes about 60 apples to make one bottle. It's uh, actually made in Jersey. Like, like Thomas Edison. <laughs> okay, what do you have here? It's a fresh uh, lemon juice. All right. Quarter ounce of honey syrup. Okay, very cool. So now you're, you're filling it up with ice and we're going to do the little shake a shake Top it with about an ounce of champagne or sparkling wine. Just in terms of the inspiration of the drink, one of the things was the champagne and the sound of uh, the original recording that Edison did. Because it's got that crackle and the bubble. The hissing and the crackle. And it really sounds when you hear an original Edison recording, you, you hear that. And if you actually sit and listen to the champagne, you really get that sense. I can hear like Mary had a little lamb being sung over exactly. that. Exactly, right over it. In fact, if I drink that, I'm going to start singing Mary Had a Little Lamb. It makes you wonder whether or not that's what he was drinking when he made the <laughs> recording. And so we had these beautiful champagne flutes prepared for this. That looks pretty amazing. Wow. It looks really elegant, but that Applejack kind of delivers a, delivers a kick in there. Yeah, a nice little kick. This is called the Edison 77, 
And where does the 77 come from? The photograph, uh, phonograph was originally uh, patented in 1877, and this is somewhat of a variation of off the French 75. So this is a nightclub as well, right? So do you DJs come here as well? Yeah, we have DJs and also live music. And do you actually have physical turntables anymore? Or is everything now laptop? We really do have physical turntables still, and a lot of the DJs enjoy spinning real vinyl. That's pretty cool. That makes sense. Uh, and considering contemporary cocktail cultures, you know, fascination with the past and prohibition, I'm surprised they don't pull up on, you know, those bikes with a big front wheel and little back wheel and a bag of foil rolls to play. Exactly. I can just picture all the people with their original foil rolls and wax rolls trying to spin them. So, Brendan, that's actually a good point. I wonder if you can scratch with old music rolls. Oh, yeah. Right? I got like a dubstep version of Mary Had a Little Lamb. Sure. I can, I can see that good happening. Rock. Uh, by the way, the Edison is serving that cocktail for free for the rest of the month. All you have to do is bring in an unopened toy, Aww. which they will pass along to a child in need. So you can sin and do good at the same time. That's right. The secret of life, man. How, how often can you do that? <laughs> you can find more information about what the Edison is up to at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, and you can find our cocktail recipes there, too. And now, the first of a few holiday treats we have for you this hour. We know food is going to be a big topic this holiday weekend. Indeed. Particularly eating less of it in the wake of Thanksgiving dinner. So we asked comedian Dimitri Martin to discuss his diet. I used to eat meat. I ate fruits and vegetables too, and a lot of other things people handed to me. I guess you could say I was an omnivore. Like a lot of people, I didn't know any better. Then I read a couple of books. One of them was called Hot Dogs and Fingertips. I also read... The Cow Feces Dilemma, as well as Barf, STDs, and Veal. These books, and my girlfriend who made me read them, really motivated me to become a vegetarian. I started out as a regular vegetarian, someone who does not eat meat. Then I became what is called a constipated vegetarian, someone who eats too many bananas. After that, I became what they call a strict vegetarian, that's someone who eats only fruits and vegetables that have been disciplined in some way. Like, for example, corn that was grown in a perfect row, or grapes that were stomped by someone in uniform. Next, I decided to become a vegan, no animals or animal products. After that, I became a Las Vegan, the same thing as vegan but living in Las Vegas. After that, I became what some call a hyper-vegan, no animal products or things that even look like animals, including animal crackers, gummy worms, those Easter peeps, asparagus that resembles a snake, a snake that resembles asparagus, etc. I was hyper-vegan for almost a year. Then, one afternoon, I sort of freaked out and ended up eating an entire cow. From what I can remember, I didn't cook or even kill the cow. I just tackled it and ate it. I'm not proud of that, but I feel I should mention it here in the interest of full disclosure. After the trial, a battery of shots, and several rounds of antibiotics, I decided to turn over a new leaf. I became raw, someone who only eats raw food. I added sushi to this a few weeks later, becoming raw plus sushi, which some say is redundant because sushi is raw. That's when I went from raw vegan to raw forager, when you only eat things that are raw that you find in the woods, like a leaf or another kind of leaf. Finally, last month, I decided to go from raw forager to passive forager. Passive forager is when you lie down on the forest floor on your back and then open your mouth and eat only the things that fall into it. 
You're supposed to only eat the things that fall in that are also not alive. However, you can eat a living thing if it is attacking your mouth, which happens from time to time. And that works out pretty well if you need to get some protein or defend your face. Anyway, today I'm feeling pretty good. Definitely much better than I look. I guess you could say my diet has been a personal journey of sorts. Of course, none of this has been good for my breath. Comedian Dimitri Martin reading from his book, This is a Book. Some stuff to keep in mind as you express your dietary preferences this holiday weekend, perhaps. Well, that probably won't help me, Rico, because when no. I go home every Thanksgiving, I have to pretend I eat meat, even if I'm not eating meat, because really? my mom's always worried that I'm not eating enough meat. <laughs> <laughs> so her motto is, is spinach kills? That's right. Yeah. yeah, no one wants to see their kid go out on leafy greens. <laughs> That's weird. Folks, we're going to take a break. Later, author, artist, director Miranda July has a new book out about her adventures with Penny Saver. It's a circular, not a superhero. After that, actress Elaine Stritch gives some etiquette pointers. If you can be a ladylike broad, that is perfection. That sounds about right. Hmm. There's more where that came from when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you stuff to talk about at your weekend gatherings. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a little bit, comic artist and TV producer Brad Neely tells us why wrestling star Hulk Hogan said this. There is no God. No God, no God, no God, no God. <laughs> I always thought that was Nietzsche for some reason. Yeah. Uh, after that, Miranda July <laughs> teaches us what she learned on an unusual shopping spree. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette segment. And here to answer listener questions about how to behave is Broadway legend Elaine Stritch. Yes, she is best known for singing the definitive version of The Ladies Who Lunch in the Broadway production of the Sondheim musical Company. You may have seen her playing Alec Baldwin's mom on 30 Rock, Elaine Thank you for being here. Thank you for asking me to come here and uh, try to be adorable on your show. <laughs> it's already working. Yeah, you already succeeded. It's working? Oh, isn't that a, a delight? So I get my dollar and a half to go home, right? That's right. Sure do. Public right. radio money. <laughs> so look, our audience is teeming with questions about how to behave, and for some reason we're going to ask you to help them. Imagine coming to me to yes. find out how to behave. I think it was that a masterstroke on our part. We'll see about that, won't we? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's get into it. So I think this. All right. Our, our first question comes from Lizzie in Washington D.C. Lizzie says people throw around the word ladylike a lot when they're talking about etiquette. What does it mean, and should I aspire to be it? Ah, now that's a good question. Mm. Uh, number one, I love the expression ladylike. I, it's very Cockney. It's like a lady, you know. It's <laughs> well, the, the Cockneys they, would say birdlike, wouldn't they? I never heard such a thing as bird-like. Bird-like would mean to me small. Oh, like I just meant little... she's a pretty bird. Say. They refer to ladies as birds. No, she's a lady-like broad. She's not a perfect bird. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Who said anything about birds? Can okay. one be a lady-like broad? Uh, that's the trick of the week. <laughs> if you can be a lady-like broad, that is perfection. I no, think... I'm not kidding about this. And what was the question? So she wants to know whether she should aspire to be ladylike. Do you think that's a worthwhile goal in this day and age? If she can sneak a little broad in on the weekends. <laughs> you know what I mean? For instance, if a ladylike person says a line like, what the hell are you talking about? 
<laughs> she should be able to get away with that mm. because she says it in a ladylike way. Right. Her lady, her but ladiness she, kind of over, you know, kind of cuts the edge. Her off ladylikeness, that. not her ladiness. I like to call it ladylikeness. <laughs> All right. Is uh, overpowering the. Uh, That's right. What the hell are you talking about? I mean, I can get away with that. <laughs> yes, you can. You just did. Yeah. This uh, broad in England, Kate Middleton should be able to lean over the table with a martini and say, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and still be a lady. I think she could get away with it. She looks like she's got a little spunk. Yeah. And I think a lady should always have spunk. I don't think she should be sitting around with tea napkins. <laughs> but if she's got some guts... A lady like human being should be able to get away with almost everything. Oh man, I wish now I want to be ladylike. Uh, well, absolutely. My my definition should make everybody want to be. You know? Well, let's uh, let's get to a second question here. I think this is a rather interesting one. Good. This is Patrick from Santa Monica, California. Patrick mm-hmm. writes, "I am a twin. I get asked all of the time whether or not I've pulled pranks, like by switching with my brother, for example. But my boring answer all the time is no." Or if I'm being really honest, well, I tried when I was six or so, but my friends could see through it right away. <laughs> no, I'm with I'm on Patrick's side. I know exactly what he's talking about. If you were a twin, w- would you buy into that, playing practical jokes on other people? And here's what I have to say to Patrick. Yeah. Practical jokes are my most unfavorite thing about comedy. Really? It's not funny. Practical jokes to me are just about as funny as a guy at a party with a lampshade on his head <laughs> trying to get a laugh. That sounds pretty funny. It, this yeah, is not, no, uh, the guy with the lampshade you think is funny? Are sure. you crazy? Well, the way you said it was pretty funny. Yeah. Well, that's a different matter. It's a okay. throwback. No, but a guy who goes has to put a lampshade on his head to get a laugh I think is in serious trouble. And is it because the practical joke is it too mean? I think it can be. Yeah. It's like fraternities and sororities. Well, I don't like them at all. All right. Well, we have, an, we have another question here uh, from Sarah from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Right. Sam at a dinner party and all the other guests are boring. Should I tell my host that's why I'm leaving? Oh, she assumes then that she's not, right? <laughs> yes. It's bad etiquette just asking this question. I know, but I love this woman. It always happens to her, apparently. Apparently. Well, <laughs> she's got a big problem. F- finish the question. So she, she asks, should I tell my host that's why I'm leaving early or fib? Oh, my God. <laughs> Everybody's boring, so that's her opinion. I'd like to meet the other people that were at the party. Yeah. And if she leaves because of the boredom, I'd suggest she have dinner first so it wasn't an entire (laughs) waste of time and try to fake it until maybe 10, 30, 11 o'clock and then go home and shut up. That's but, what I do. But she should definitely not put a lampshade on her head, right? No, I, that was the last question, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was. Just... I think she's very brave to ask that question. <laughs> yes. And who knows? She may be the only person in Minneapolis, Minnesota that's not boring. I mean, how do we know this? <laughs> Carry on. Here's the last one. All right. And appropriately enough, it's about dinner parties. Oh! Daniel of Chicago, Illinois writes, I want to throw legendary dinner parties. What was the most memorable dinner party you ever attended and why? Mm. I'm looking forward to this. Um, I did a movie once with um, Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. Uh. They gave the um, dinner party. And I had a blind date with guess who? Frank Sinatra. What? Yes. And he picked me up at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I changed my dress about seven times (laughs) before he got there. And he wasn't there. It was just the driver he sent. That's pretty memorable. 
Yeah. So I went to the party. By the time I'd gotten to the party, I had had about three martinis <laughs> to get the nerve to go to the party in the first place. And all I heard in this huge mansion in Beverly Hills was Frank Sinatra singing, I Get a Kick Out of You. And I went into the library, and there's all these big stars sitting around on the floor watching Frank Sinatra on television, Whoa. you know, doing his show. Now I had four martinis. <laughs> he finished, and in that little moment of silence, when he got to, that's why the lady is a tramp, I said, well, you can say what you want, but the son of a can sing. <laughs> Whereupon, Tony Curtis looks up and says, Frank, that's your date. <laughs> he took me into dinner, and well into the dinner, he said to me, so you're in the theater, eh? People in the theater ain't going no place. No. And I said to Frank Sinatra, who was right with me on the martinis. Surprise. And I said, really? Well, for a long time, Mr. Sinatra, I've been dying to meet you so I could ask you where the hell you think you're going. <laughs> he stood up and he said, get her out of here. Whoa. And I went to Hamburger Hamlet on Sunset <laughs> Boulevard with the driver and had dinner. Man. Now, the point of this dinner party story, the best dinner I ever went to, 10, 11 years later, I walked into 21, the famous chic restaurant yeah. in New York, and Frank Sinatra was sitting at table number one, and uh, I was introduced, and Frank Sinatra said, oh, you're the girl in the theater that ain't going no place. <laughs> And this was 11 years later. Wow. And I said to myself, well, he remembered me, didn't he? Nice. <laughs> and that's all I wanted to know. I thought it was one of the best compliments I've ever had in my life. Well, Elaine, it is safe to say that we are going to remember you, too. Uh, thanks for your help. This has been fun. I can't say that about a lot of things that I do. And I just enjoyed the hell out of being here, if that's ladylike enough for you. It certainly is. Okay. Elaine Stritch, thanks for being here. And I hope I see both of you again. Being nice and having manners, these are things that we all should know. I hope that you have learned some manners. Thank you now and you may go. And now, time to eavesdrop. Comic artist Brad Neely grew a cult following with his online videos. That got the attention of the show South Park, where he wrote for two seasons. Now he has his own animated TV show, which just launched. This week, we overhear him telling some dinner-party-worthy tales about one of its stars. Hi, my name is Brad Neely. I have a new show on Cartoon Network. It's called China, Illinois. It's about a college where the professors are crazy and the students just want to learn, um, but they can't because the professors are nuts. We got a lot of great voice talent on this show. We have Greta Gerwig, we have Jeffrey Tambor, and guest actors like Jason Alexander. Um, but, you know, I got to say the standout in just a lot of ways. I mean, personally, everybody. Hulk Hogan, H.H., uh, who plays the dean of the school. I've been secretly renovating the old schoolhouse. That's where we'll hold this year's faculty-only prom. And whomever I judge to be prom king and queen gets a Ferrari. So professors, pick a hot date. As soon as I knew that we had him cast, I wrote like 10 pages of just lines that didn't have to do with anything just because I knew I was going to have Hulk Hogan in the booth in front of a mic. I'm going to have him say whatever I want. 
So we just had him say all this crazy stuff that he's totally game for. Steve, I'm revoking your tenure. Pony, your tenure's gone too. Wait, what? My wife was eaten by a squid, so I don't need to hide my granny love. When he comes to our studio where all the people are, everyone it's flocks around him like they're going to get their warts healed or, you know, like he's, it's, it's something out of the Bible, you know, or it's, he's really is like Hercules. And then when he, when he leaves, it's like an emotional shockwave went off and everyone can't work and they're sad. It's strange. One equation left. Score tied. Donnie, you're up. You gotta lie to yourself here and believe that you are me. I'm inside you. Feel me growing you until there's nothing left of you. And remember, I will f kill you if you lose. He's a real actor. Um, he's able to understand what the jokes are, deliver surprises that we often keep. I always think that I'm giving him something that he will balk at. Uh, here's a line where you say there is no God. But he goes the extra mile and says it four times uh, with a lot of spit shooting out. There is no God. No God, no God, no God, no God. Just us people trying to party before we die. I'm pretty sure he doesn't know what my name is. He doesn't know what the name of the show is. And there is a fear when you first encounter him that, oh, he has not read the script. He's going to be totally unprepared. He doesn't know what the character is. He, <laughs> last time I saw him, he was, I said, how are you doing, Hulk? He said, I haven't slept for two weeks. What are we doing? <laughs> but he counts himself in uh, to each line. He's like, three, two, one, and just nails it. Steve wins! The giant will be executed in the usual manner. Acid shall be poured into his ears. Then he will be rolled into the ocean! It's, it's, I still can't get, um over it. I'm it something happens to my body when I'm around him. Everything crawls up and starts squishing. Your whole body wants to like run off or just let him eat you. My wife is like, shut up about Hulk Hogan. Comic artist Brad Neely talking about his new TV show China Illinois, which airs on the Cartoon Network Sundays at midnight. You're listening to The Dinner Party. The dinner party, the dinner party, the dinner party from American Public Media. And now it's time for a chattering class, the part of the show where we talk to someone who knows something we don't. This week, we are speaking with renowned artist Miranda July here in her office. You may have read Miranda's books or seen her short stories in The New Yorker. She made the indie films The Future and Me, You, and Everyone We Know. Today, we're going to talk about her new book called It Chooses You... It just came out this week, and it is about her adventures meeting people who advertise in the Penny Saver. And Miranda, hello. Hello. So before we hear what you learned from this experience, maybe for the benefit of some listeners, you should teach us what the Penny Saver actually is. Right. Well, if you live in L.A., or frankly, lots of parts of the country, it's the thing that comes with the junk mail. In fact, as you were coming in, I think I was throwing out um, a whole bunch of penny savers from the last few weeks. It's just like the classified ads. Usually there's an ad for like LASIK eye surgery on the front or something like that. It's like, a lot, it's like the old fashioned printed on paper booklet full of classified ads where people try to sell stuff. Right. And if you really think about it, you'll kind of be like, huh. Can't believe this still exists, given Craigslist. You know? This thing called eBay I've heard tell about. <laughs> right. But to people like me, that's very appealing. And, and I, I would usually just 
glance at it to see if there were any estate sales or garage sales. But during this particularly procrastination-oriented period of my life, I would be like, maybe I'll just read the whole thing. You know, all the people selling things, automotive, real estate, everything. The way some people read dictionaries, you read the penny saver. Right, or the newspaper. I thought of it as like, you know, what was going on in LA? And like it appealed to me that none of these people were fictional. They're all real. They all lived in LA and there were their phone numbers. And you, you went and interviewed these people basically who were selling stuff in the penny saver. What was the first thing you learned about them? Was there, was there something common to all of them? Well, in a way, no. I mean, certainly all my preconceptions um, were blown away, right? I mean, the first person I met was a guy selling a leather jacket, burly guy in his 60s, pink blouse, pink lipstick. He was going through a gender transformation, which he, he kind of whispered to us through a crack in the door when we first showed up and he was amazing and totally open and willing to talk about it. And then the next person was this woman who wasn't even poor. You know, that was my, at least my basic, you know, idea of who would sell things. No, she was much wealthier than me, Indian woman, raising money, albeit in a really laborious way, um, <laughs> selling things for like a small town in India that needed a water pump. What was she selling? Saris. She had this idea that she could sell off some of her saris. To help this town in India? Yeah. I mean, the one thing in common was no one who really uses the penny saver uses computers. Or they have one, but they just don't relate to it because they're elderly or because they're just sort of old world, like that Indian woman. Like they're just, it's just not a part of their culture. And in that sense, I began to realize that it was almost this study of this minority, which is just people in LA who don't use computers, this thing that would go away very soon without us even noticing. I feel like we've just begun, but I think we have time for maybe one more thing you took away from this experience. Well, another thing I learned was like actually how uncomfortable I was outside of my own fictions. You know, like I, I like making stuff up. There's a reason I spend most of my life in this office. So this was a sort of self-imposed, and it's not the first time I've like forced myself to engage with strangers. I think it's some desire to counterbalance that. You know, you're out there in some part of LA without the GPS, I would ne I, I might as well have been in like another country and they don't care that I'm Miranda July or even really what I'm doing there. I mean, it's amazing how people didn't really question why. I was going to say one thing that's unique to all of these people and common to all of them is that they let a stranger come into their house and just like start looking around. I wouldn't do that with people I know. Did you find these people to be more open? Well, for one thing, if you're putting the ad in the penny saver, you're already expecting a phone call from a stranger, which I would never invite into my life. Although I have to say it kind of reminded me of the 70s, like of my childhood. This time when you just, you ended up, I don't know, in people's houses more. It was like a little less, you know, there was no email. So right away they were already I'd say not exceptionally open, just sort of typical of their era. And then I should also say a lot of people said no. You know, these, these are the people who said yes. You didn't just fill half the book with empty pages to represent all the rejections. Right. Those people are entirely unrepresented. 
Shattering Class with Miranda July. Her new book, It Chooses You, went on sale this week. And think about this, Rico. If you buy it online, yeah. you'll be using the internet to buy a printed book mm. about people who sell things in a printed book because they don't like the internet. <laughs> My brain is exploding. You can buy one of those at the Penny Saver. <laughs> Probably for about a buck at this point. Uh, coming up, Brendan dines on Chinese turkey and learn why Hollywood fears director David Cronenberg. I mean, Marty Scorsese was afraid to meet me. Wow, all that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, filmmaker David Cronenberg, whose movies explore the dark side of the human psyche, reveals a terrifying secret. I've lived a life without therapy, and I'm, I feel just pretty good. The horror! But first, it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. That's right. Enrico, you may have noticed in Chinatown this week, the ducks hanging in restaurant windows have been a lot bigger than usual. Yeah, well, kind of. That's because they're turkeys. As in rejected ducks? As in actual turkeys, Chinese barbecue turkeys. Ah. They show up around Thanksgiving, and they're prepared kind of like Peking duck. They have crispy skin. They're flavored with Chinese five spice. And you wanted to taste some, so you decided to do a story about it. Exactly. It's called journalism. So I decided to launch my investigation at <laughs> Hop Wu Restaurant in L.A.'s Chinatown. My guide was George Yu, head of the local business council and a first-generation Chinese-American. All right. Chef Lupe Lang served us Chinese turkey in a whole lot of ways. We had Chinese turkey salad with the lettuce. Chinese turkey salad with lettuce. Mushu turkey. Mushu turkey. It was an exhaustive investigation is what you're saying. There was a lot. It's a turkey lettuce wrap. Turkey noodle soup. That one more. It's an orange peel turkey. All right, this turkey looks exquisite, and I can't wait to taste some of it myself. But, you know, turkeys aren't as fatty and delicious as duck or as, as other poultry. So was the inspiration, was it like business savvy of this is the emptiest day of the year for us? Or was it more like I think this could be a fun collision of food culture? Most Chinese restaurants and chefs are much more pragmatic, so it, it is from a business perspective. And also growing up, we didn't think too much of the American-style turkey. Growing up, I didn't think too much of that. Okay, okay. Um, the Chinese style of cooking the turkey definitely retains the juices and infuses more you know, natural flavorings than what I had when I first came over in the States. So how did this start? In the late 70s, the original Samu restaurant which pretty much popularized the Chinese barbecue, made his first turkey. And since then, the different chefs have produced their own version of the Thanksgiving holiday turkey. Are there turkeys in China? My first turkey was here. Uh, we never saw you know, a, a, a big chicken before, and it sure didn't taste as good as chicken. What does he eat on Thanksgiving? What do you eat on Thanksgiving? As, as with any good Chinese business person, he's open next Thursday. So his Thanksgiving with the family is this, and he eats it on Wednesday. All right. It's the moment of truth. You know, even if I like this better than my mom's turkey, I'm going to have to lie. It's going to be the part of the... It's really moist. It's really succulent. Mm. There's like an anise, that undertone to it. Amazing. Um, is there is there an equivalent holiday in China to, to Thanksgiving? Yes, Zhongjiujie, the Moon Festival. We've always thought that was because that's the 
you know how Thanksgiving, everybody's supposed to come. If you're anywhere near home, you better be home for dinner. Yeah. And to me, the, the moon festival, um, the mid-autumn festival, when you eat moon cakes, that's the Chinese version of that. Right. And do people just sit around and watch football afterwards? <laughs> no, you go out and look at the moon. I've passed out and looked up at the moon. So, Brendan, man, difficult week. Tell me about it. You had to sip champagne cocktails and eat delicious turkey. I'm sorry. I might get an ulcer before I finally get my Pulitzer. Yeah. But damn it, I'm relentless and I'll get the story. (laughs) Murrow would be proud. Thanks. Uh, Folks, if you support this sort of hard-hitting reportage, tell us as much at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And if you have a restaurant or bar that you need me to investigate, call Mm. me directly at 213-621-3554. Good night and good luck. Our guest of honor is David Cronenberg. He's considered among the greatest and certainly the most challenging filmmakers alive. He, of course, directed the remake of The Fly on his last film, Eastern Promises. He directed Viggo Mortensen to an Oscar nomination. His new movie is A Dangerous Method, a period drama about psychotherapists Carl Jung and Sigmund Freud. And David, welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. The core of this movie, very simply put, is about Jung trying to treat an almost rabidly sexual woman and sort of falling for her. This is something that I see in a number of your films. You have like a clinical kind of intellectual who succumbs to the physical or the sensual. And I have a hard time deciding what you feel about that. Is that a good thing or a a bad thing? Well, it's an inevitable thing. And certainly Freud would not have been surprised by the whole process. I mean, for one thing, he was constantly aware that however intellectual you were, you were still a human being. In fact, that was part of his revolution and why he was considered so dangerous by the very repressive society that he lived in. Although they felt in the Austro-Hungarian Empire that men were evolving nicely from animals to angels, he was saying not so fast. You know, there are all kinds of primitive forces at work in human beings, and they're still there, and sexuality is certainly one of them. And at the same time, he... um, talking about this new invention of his psychoanalysis and this brand new relationship that he developed where you go to someone who is a complete stranger and he asks you to reveal to him all your most intimate and embarrassing secrets. Yeah, I wonder if something might happen there. And so it does. Freud would not have been surprised. So would your position be then that you don't want to judge Jung's behavior? Because I know that my first instinct as a modern Western person is to say, well, that's completely unprofessional and quite dangerous that he slept with his patient. It doesn't seem like he's going to make her well that way. And yet she did say in her diary she was cured by Jung of her hysteria, of her sort of debilitating mental state of mind. You have to remember, of course, we're living in a very PC era right now, but at the time, nobody knew what the ethical boundaries were. Nobody knew what the pragmatic boundaries were. So you have Otto Gross, a historical character, and he's in the movie, a sort of revolutionary proto-hippie psychiatrist saying, well, why not sleep with our patients? Like, who says that's wrong? Like, how do we know that's not the best thing for them? And in the case of Sabina, she says, that was the good thing. Is is your goal to blow our minds or to have any further ethical stance on that? Well, my goal really was to present these people as they were because I thought they were explosive and interesting enough and complex enough that I didn't need to shape it. I wasn't trying, and and neither was Christopher Hampton with his screenplay. I mean, 
what I liked about it was the, the neutrality of it. We were just saying, okay, let's let them say what they said, do what they did, and that will reveal a lot of things. We don't have to mess with it. I, I don't think people that know your films, especially your very disturbing horror and sci-fi films, that you might have some interest or perhaps personal experience with psychoanalysis. But that's very presumptuous of me. I mean, do you? Have you ever engaged in it yourself? No, I haven't, because I have no problems. <laughs> I laugh, but I'm saying, I mean, of course, uh, at my age and, and living through the 50s and 60s in Canada, I mean, you know people who've been in analysis, and, and in fact, I have family members who were analysts, but I myself have never been in analysis, um, just because I've, I've never felt the need. I mean, really, seriously. Now, th now this is interesting, because I kind of suspected that you might say that, and my question to you then is, is your psychoanalysis your filmmaking? Is that the catharsis? Is that enough? No, absolutely not. It, uh, to me, filmmaking is not therapy. Uh, I don't think of art as therapeutic at all. I think that would surprise your fans, seriously. Like, I think they, they really want to read in that your protagonists are you and that you're working out because they're really like vivid nightmares sometimes. Yeah, you run into that a lot. I mean, Marty Scorsese was afraid to meet me many years ago uh, after he saw my early horror films. And I said, but Marty, you're the guy who made Taxi Driver. I should be afraid to meet you. I was going to say, like, he's the last guy to have anything to say here. Well, there you go. Really. The relationship between an artist and his art is a very complex one. It's not like, hey, I make romantic comedies, therefore I'm a romantic, funny guy. Usually it's the contrary, in fact. Comedians are well known to be hideous, you know, vindictive <laughs> people. So for me, the making movies is, is a joy. It's a pleasure. It's not sort of the painful solving of a terrible secret problem. It's actually, you've got to remember that there's a huge component of childlike play in making movies. We are, you know, putting on mustaches and pretending that we're people that we're not. And that's what kids do that. And they take great joy out of that. And it, to think of that as therapeutic is really to diminish the, the reality of it. But I do think that the reason why these questions must pepper you constantly is because the art you're choosing to make is not often play-like. It's often dealing with death, uh, disease, things like that. Yeah, but, you know, there's a lot of humor in all of my movies, and including this one, you got to admit. And I've never, you know, I mean, I've, I've lived a life without therapy, and I'm, I feel just pretty good, you know. <laughs> You're making movies. You're doing all right, uh, from my point of view. We have two questions that we ask everyone on this show. The first is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? And I hope I haven't asked it. You probably have. It's like, what drew you to this project? To any project? I don't think I did ask you this. No, but everybody else has. I'm waiting for it. I'm waiting for it. <laughs> that, that's, it's usually the least exciting for me to answer, you know? The thing, too, is that it would be lovely, really, if you could say, now, at this point in my career, I think I'll do this kind of movie. But, in fact, it's so hard to get a movie made that it's usually you, you do the next one because that's the one that got financed. People used to say, why now are you doing Dead Ringers? And I said, well, I would have done it 10 years ago when I started the project, but I couldn't get the money together, you know. All analyses of why you chose to do this now are doomed to fail because uh, you don't choose to do it now. It just It's the one that you managed to get to work. Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. Mm, something's quivering on the brink, you know. It's there. It's, it's about insects, which is, of course, what people would expect. Uh, but I can't remember what it is. All right. Well, while you think of it, I actually found something that I didn't know about you while I was researching you, which is that at one point you were considered to direct 
Return of the Jedi, the third Star Wars film? I was in my kitchen. I got a phone call. It was a guy who said he was calling on behalf of George Lucas. And would I be interested in doing what was, in, I think, called Revenge of the Jedi? And I said, <laughs> I said, well, you know, I don't usually do other people's material. And it was kind of click. <laughs> I, I of course, yeah. realized that I would have had to show total, mad, unbridled enthusiasm for the idea rather than like, suggesting that there might be a problem with that. that. That was as close as it came. Looking at Return of the Jedi, what would you do differently? Maybe have Luke catch a disease of some kind or maybe explore the relationship, possibly sexual, between him and Leia? Honestly, it's not my favorite. Um, I prefer The Empire Strikes Back. And Brendan, it is interesting, right? This idea that artists aren't necessarily like their art, you know? Yeah, you're right. I mean, take us in real life. We're antisocial shut-ins who sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks. That's true. But thanks to technology, we have these wonderful radio voices. Yeah, it's all (laughs) computer effects. Uh, Folks, tell us about the real you on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash dinnerpartydownload. You're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. So, Rico, it is the post-Thanksgiving weekend, right. and not only is this a time to eat, Wait, but what? Food. I missed the memo. I've been <laughs> fasting on juice and vinegar the last few days. Oh, yeah. Well, that sounds like an L.A. Thanksgiving. Oh. That's right. Anyway, not only is this a time to eat, it's time to relax and be casual. So right now, we're going to combine the two by giving our audience a peek behind our radio curtain. Yes. Here's a little radio secret for you all. When we record a guest... We have to adjust the microphone volume to their voice, so we ask them to say a few words. Now, pros, like songwriter Randy Newman, might say something like this. One, two, three, four. Oh, hello, something about myself. Here it is. This is my real voice. Yeah, total pro, that guy. For real. So I changed my last name. Oh. But usually for a mic check, we ask guests to tell us something they had to eat that day. Mm-hmm. So listen now to a bunch of famous people telling us their daily meals, starting with Mr. Antonio Banderas. Check, check. And can I get your level? Tell me what uh, you had for breakfast today. Oh, for breakfast, I think I had a a white tea, a bucket, actually, of white tea. A bucket of tea? Yeah, that's what I have every morning, actually. Yeah, I do yoga. I run, and then I do a bucket of white tea. And then uh, 20 minutes after, I eat an apple. You only eat an apple? That's it. How do you build this body on just one apple and tea? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't know, because the rest of the day I pick anything. <laughs> I mean, ham, cheese, whatever is around, you know, sandwiches, just end up in my mouth. So uh, introduce yourself and tell us what you had for breakfast. Judy Collins. I had yogurt and fruit, and um, I'm looking forward to lunch. I always do. Tell us, Miranda July, what you had for breakfast. I made a special smoothie with bananas and yogurt and almond butter. I guess the almond butter makes it special? Yeah. It was special to me. Big Frida, if you would like to tell us what you had for breakfast. For breakfast, I only had apples. What? That's it? Every, you never, Every, everybody who comes in here, yeah. they, all they eat is fruit for uh, breakfast. What happened to pancakes? I eat eggs and cheese. Well, I wish I could have had any of that this morning. <laughs> I had an egg 
bacon and cheese sandwich at the Minneapolis airport. I had a fried egg on whole wheat toast with a little bit of unsalted butter. Yeah. I had a cup of coffee. <laughs> Chuck Klosterman, can you tell us what uh, you had for breakfast? I don't eat breakfast. I haven't eaten anything today. Ever? You never I, eat uh, breakfast? I drink Mountain Dew for breakfast. Jackie Collins, tell us what you had for breakfast so we can get a sound uh, one, check. Sorry, one, two, three, testing, one, two, three, testing. I do not eat breakfast, so that's why I'm doing one, two, three, testing. You don't eat breakfast? No. At really? All? No. Unless that's some leftover meatballs. Like a little protein? Yeah, but I can't I mean breakfast. <sighs> really? God, is it not cool anymore? Like, should I stop eating breakfast? No, I think you're supposed to eat breakfast. Oh, okay. Yes, to be a strong, manly person like you are. John Lithgow, can uh, you just tell me what you had for lunch today so I can make sure Oh, I had John Dory. I had way too much to eat for lunch. I'm regretting it now because I have to act all evening. (laughs) I had a piece of cold pizza for lunch. We had hot pizza last night, but we had the residue today. Okay, Gabrielle Hamilton, chef and now author... In your case, this could actually be instructive. So what did you have <laughs> what, for lunch? What did today? I have for lunch? Yeah. The chef is running a dish by me right now, a sandwich. And it was kind of stoner foodie, but pretty good. It was... <laughs> <laughs> Peanut butter and bananas? No, it was braised pork with a pretty rich triple creme cheese on some grilled bread. And it had, you know what sea beans are? Those little crunchy, salty greeneries. <laughs> inside. It was not quite a hit, but I ate the whole thing <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> I was All like, right. I'm not stoned, but this is really hitting the spot. <laughs> we hope that whetted your appetite for Thanksgiving leftovers, folks. If you want a list of all those guests and their food preferences, you'll find it at dinnerpartydownload.org. And folks, that is the dinner party for this holiday weekend. Next time, Brendan speaks with Michelle Williams. She's an Academy Award-nominated actress, but that almost didn't happen. Well, first I wanted to be a boxer. Interesting. Same with Jackson Musker, but now he is the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks also to Brendan Willard, Chris Clark, Peter Clowney, Ellen Gettler, Craig Curtis, and Judy McAlpin. And now we leave you with One for the Road, a song to listen to on the way to or on your way home from your weekend dinner parties. The band is called Real Estate, but unlike the economic sector of the same name, they are thriving. Indeed. They're currently on tour, and they sent us an appropriately food-themed little audio postcard from Paris. Here's that, followed by their song, It's Real. Bon appétit. Okay, so it's early in the morning. We're en route from Amsterdam to Paris right now. We're at a gas station, which we're no stranger to on the road in any country. But the weirdest part about European gas stations is they make you pay to go to the bathroom. It's probably the worst part. The best part is the utter abundance of chocolate croissants. Thanks for attending the dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. 
And man, doesn't it feel great to be safe inside using our actual real voices? Totally. And Randy Newman's gonna be like totally proud of us.